And I discovered the actual missing link, the thing that is the game changer, the information that is missing from all of the alternative and natural health stuff that I had been into. I was like, how have I never heard of this before? This stuff was mind blowing. This man's discoveries, his personal experience, what he found, I was shocked that I had never heard it before. Hi. How are you doing? It's going great. How are you? Wonderful. So nice to reconnect with you. Yeah, so nice. It's been, I feel like this year, the pacing, the timing has been a whirlwind. I don't know about you, but I feel like it's been both fast and also slow. Like March yep. feels like forever ago. Ever ago. Yeah, like definitely feels like a year ago. <laughs> Minimum. Yeah. Seriously, so crazy. Um, well, I'm really excited to chat today. Um, oh, I've been really looking forward to this. I personally am so curious about specifically your range of expertise, but also just I love conversations of health and wellness and especially tying it to kind of the realm of like critical thinking and how we view the world. For me, it's all very obviously interconnected. Um, so I'm excited to get into that. So Let's start by, first of all, thank you for being here. I appreciate your time. And um, let's have you just introduce yourself and tell me about the work you do, how you got there. Um, we, for the audience, Melissa and I met at a health freedom event in March. Were you at the one in um, Kansas City back in October? Oh, that was, okay, I, I that, that one, yeah. Yeah, that one was that was my first like that's when I met Alec in person for the first time. And um ever since then I've just been like loving connecting with everyone in that community. But that's where Melissa and I met and um an amazing event that was on a regenerative farm. And your talk was just so fascinating. So I was like, I need to get this chick on. Um, but please go ahead and introduce yourself, tell me what you do, a bit about how you got into your field and and all that good stuff. I'm a chiropractor, that's my background. I when I got out of high school, I started working at a chiropractic office and started seeing really cool stuff happen. I got, you know, just exposed to the whole world of natural health and healing and nutrition and exercise and detox and taking care of the spine. It was like I entered this whole world of wellness and learned that, you know, disease wasn't something that just happens that we can prevent it with improving our lifestyle. So I was like, I'm all about this. And so I went to chiropractic school and graduated um, in 2012 and, and started practicing and loved it, loved everything about, you know, teaching people how to eat healthy, how to buy clean products, how to take care of their spine and move and exercise and all the things. I did that and I loved it for, for many years, but I started, there started to be some things like in my own personal life um, where I was, you know, doing all of the right stuff. All of the, you know, if you followed me around all day, you'd see she's, you know, drinking her green smoothie. She's, you know, hydrated and extra. She's doing all the right things. But I still had like inner stuff, specifically around relationships. And, you know, I get anxiety every Sunday night. I had, there was just stuff going on that wasn't fully being addressed by the kind of physical interventions, the lifestyle changes that I had done up until that point. And, you know, so in my relationship, my partner and I, you know, in order to stay together, I was like, I need to do some work on myself. I need to start like meditating and paying attention to my thoughts and my perceptions and how I'm creating this experience. And I started like discovering lots of interesting stuff about myself, how my mind operates, how um, my perception was creating my reality. And I had no idea before. I had no idea that things aren't just the way that they are. 
I perceive them and I, you know, I distort my reality to fit into preconceived ideas. So that was just some like crazy mind blowing stuff that mm-hmm. started to really change what I felt was like the most important thing when it comes to health. Because, you know, and after a while, a few years in practice, I started seeing people would come in and they would make some of the changes, but they'd kind of keep going back, <laughs> keep going back to old habits, keep mm-hmm. going back to old problems. And I'm like, hmm, maybe the my, my patients and the people I'm working with need some of this like inner mind stuff that I'm doing too. So my partner and I, we kind of started to do more of that and less of like the in the office here, do this, not don't do that. We started teaching classes about the mind, about perception, about paying attention to your internal experience of reality and, uh, and making changes there. So that was like some really cool stuff that we started doing. But all along, so we we started doing that. I, I stopped, I kind of stopped doing in-office work. We started doing more online classes and coaching. But there was still something in me. I'm like, there's something related to between the perception stuff, between this mind stuff and health. Mm-hmm. I didn't know specifically what it was yet. You know, I knew obviously that like the more peaceful you are, the less stress that you have in your life, the healthier you're going to be. But like the direct connection wasn't fully there, but then it found me. And so it was um, early in the year in 2017, I was listening to a podcast and someone mentioned it was the podcast wasn't even about German new medicine, but someone mentioned it, German new medicine, and then just carried on. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> I've never heard of this before. And that opened the door. And the mo I started looking up and seeing what, what was this thing called German new medicine. And I discovered the actual missing link, the thing that is the game changer, the information that is missing from all of the alternative and natural health stuff that I had been into. I was like, how have I never heard of this before? This stuff was mind blowing. This man's discoveries, his personal experience, what he found, I was shocked that I had never heard it before. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I spent the next nine months studying everything that I could get my hands on. And then I started talking about it. And so if you've never heard of it before, German new medicine, that's what I first learned it, of it. That's what it was called, German new medicine. Since then, um, Germanic new medicine or Germanische Heilkunde, which is translated to Germanic healing knowledge. So this is the work and the discovery of a German medical doctor named Dr. Reichgerd Hammer. And in uh, 1978, uh, his son was shot. So Dr. Hammer's son was shot. He survived for three months, but ended up uh, passing away in his father's arms. And a few months after that, Dr. Hammer discovered he had testicular cancer. And so he instantly had a feeling that there was a connection between the loss of his son and the cancer. And he worked in oncology and had access to cancer patients. So he started, you know, he worked with this idea that there's a relationship between a shocking trauma and cancer. And what he found out was not that there's just a a connection between it, but that every man who had testicular cancer specifically had some type of loss. Every woman who had glandular breast cancer had some type of profound worry she was dealing with. Every woman with ductal breast cancer had dealt with a separation conflict. Everyone with lung cancer had a death fright conflict. Colon cancer had an ugly, indigestible situation in their life that they couldn't process. So more than just stress and cancer, more than just, you know, stress is a problem and then, you know, that causes stuff to go haywire in the body. He started to see maybe there's something more to it than that. Maybe these can't these things we're calling cancer that seem like a disease, they seem to have some biological purpose and meaning. 
And so he went on to study the entire body. He looked at the brain. He made these connections that no one has ever seen before and found that what we call cancer is not an error in the body. It's not the body making a mistake. It's not something just going haywire and screwing up and cells are just multiplying out of control. That's what I was taught that cancer is just, oh, cells, they just go rogue because of toxins or bad genes or something. And they just start, you know, growing, 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 and we have to stop them. He discovered that cells in the body, they only will grow after they have a stimulus and the stimulus is a shock. So something catches an organism, an individual off guard. And in that moment, your body begins to adapt to help you to survive the shock that you just suffered. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the testicular cancer isn't Dr. Hammer's body doing something wrong. It was the natural response to having lost, lost offspring is to reinforce the testicles and make them more robust so that you can what? Replace what was lost. You can procreate again. And so every disease process in the body has a shock that initiates intentional tissue adaptations meant for survival. And when that conflict is resolved, the body goes back to normal homeostasis. And so this is a completely new way of understanding the language of the body and what our symptoms mean. So if let's say the like symptom of being cancer, right? Like cancerous cells, if that's supposed to be the body doing its natural process, obviously it sounds like in most, what I've heard most cases, like it can kill you, right? So how do you kind of make that switch or what's happening where that is becoming obviously a problem for like your health, right? Where you start to deteriorate because of the cancer. How does that like tie together? So a lot of the time, it's not actually the cancer that kills a person. It's the, it's fear. It is intervention. So like what a lot of people will say, my so-and-so died of cancer. Often it's not actually the cancerous adaptation that is causing the death. So you know, the, the whole idea of what actually killed the person, it's not always the, the cancer gets blamed for it, but it's not always the cancer process itself, mm-hmm. but there are situations. So when you're in an active conflict, so a conflict shock happens, your body starts adapting during the adaptation phase. There's either cellular growth, cellular loss, or functional loss, depending on the tissue type that's involved with the shock. So different types of shocks require different tissues to change. So when you have a death fright, when you are, you know, being chased by a lion and you think you're going to die, you know, you're, you don't need extra digestive cells. What you need are extra lung alveoli cells. You can absorb more oxygen so you can get out of that situation. And so it depends on the shock, what exactly it is that you're dealing with. That depends on which program gets activated. So there's either going to be cellular growth, cellular loss. An example of this would be if you are in a territorial fear situation where you feel unsafe in your territory, the bronchial lining will erode. So you widen the bronchioles so you can get more oxygen into your lungs. Mm. So we've got cell growth, cell loss, or functional loss. An example of this would be if you are frozen in fear, if you have a shock where you feel paralyzed in fear, your body literally will play dead, just like the animals play dead when they're being chased. Our bodies have the capacity to play dead and our muscles will go paralyzed when we are in certain shocking situations. So those are the three types of adaptations. Now, when you're in 
fight or flight, when you're in the shock, that is, it's metabolically expensive. So this is when a person, they're not sleeping, they're not eating, they're losing weight. They're like wasting away because they're constantly in fight or flight. Now in nature, you're not going to be in fight or flight indefinitely. You're either going to, you know, get in a fight and win or die. You're going to run away or die. Like there's only a couple of options and it's not going to last a very long time. But we, in our modern society, we stay, we can stay in conflict for a very long time and not resolve something. We Mm -hmm. can live with, you know, you know, with these problems, with these issues, we can think about it, we can reactivate it. And so when we're in uh, an adaptation process for a really, really long time, you know, the body can waste away, you know, and so a person can pass away due to just, you know, cachexia, their body is weakened. They're not, uh, you know, they're, they're starving basically. Mm -hmm. And, and then they, that can cause death. Now, another thing that could cause, you know, a cancerous process adaptation to potentially lead to someone passing away would be if the growth has gone on for so long, let's say in the colon, for example, that nothing can get through anymore. And so that blockage, you know, can cause a backup in the system and can in turn cause a person to die. So there are situations where if the conflict goes on for a really long time, or if a person resolves the conflict and their body is working to set them back to normal homeostasis. So during the healing phase is typically when a person has the most symptoms, but fear. So even just having, let's say you've got a lump in your breast, like that can be such a terrifying experience for a person. And Dr. Hammer discovered that, you know, what we typically think of as metastasis, this idea that the cancer starts here and then just spreads everywhere else. It's actually subsequent additional conflicts. So the bone is self-devaluation. The liver is a starvation conflict. Um, the, The lung is a death fright conflict. So if a person gets a cancer diagnosis or simply feels a lump in their body, they can immediately get scared, mm-hmm. another shock, which can lead to additional adaptations. And so that's why, you know, it's never as simple as the cancer just killed someone. It's there's complications, there's additional conflicts. And so there's all, it always makes sense if you look at the person's whole entire story. And when you're looking at this as adaptation, it's not that the adaptation can't have a negative effect on you, but right. the whole point is that it's what's happening is a logical process. It's not erroneous. It's not mess. Your body isn't messing up. It's doing something logical. Okay. I'm having a lot of light bulbs go off now though. That (laughs) way of explaining it makes a lot of sense because it sounds like this is sort of my, I'm a very uh, repeat back learner. So I will regurgitate information in the layman's terms to make sure I've got it. So it seems like it's kind of more about once you get that cancer diagnosis, in the typical conventional like allopathic system, that diagnosis itself can be the spiral of what you're calling other conflicts. And so I immediately thought of, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Zach Bush. Mm. Um, he, I have seen a few videos of him kind of explain his practices approach to dealing with cancer. And he's talked about how that moment itself is really important. And so instead of making the diagnosis, very grim and dark and you know how it usually is to say that you know they try to basically bring the patient into thinking about basically spinning it into a positive format in in some way right and so this to me i think what i'm connecting here is that it's about then changing essentially like the process of diagnosis and what we'd go into as treatment which i for one definitely know like 
there's a stark difference between the typical conventional treatment of cancer, which seems like for decades now, I mean, overwhelmingly is not working, right? Like we, you know, everyone can name someone who's died from cancer, basically, which is just awful. And so to think maybe that treatment, what happens right after is actually causing more conflict, right? And if that's what started in the first place, you know, it's no wonder your body's going to continue doing what it knows how to do best. And that's, I think, really interesting piece there is not viewing the symptoms of the body as something, you know, objectively negative, that actually our body's very intelligent, it knows what to do. But then the mind comes in, I think this is really where like it gets interesting to say, you know, these things happen, but we create a relationship to it, right? Same thing with how we perceive reality, you know, something happens to us, it's about how we view it, it's about how we react, and whether we process it or not. Is that like on the right track? Yes, absolutely. And this is so this, you know, I encourage every individual to learn this for themselves. That's, you know, that's why I love to come on podcasts and share this with people because this is the language of your body. And if you, you know, can be scared by a diagnosis, because that's the thing is when you go into the medical world to have them tell you about your body, that's it's just inherently disempowering. It's Mm -hmm. poor little old me. I don't know what's going on. And I go to the doctor and he tells me, she tells me, you have this big, scary thing versus if you understood that your body has an adaptive language and that when you go through shocking, difficult life circumstances, that your whole body is trying to help you through those shocking, difficult life circumstances. And when you develop a symptom, whether it's you know diarrhea or a skin condition or a lump or a rash or whatever, it's your body is adapting to help you through whatever it is you're dealing with. So when you can start seeing your symptoms through that lens rather than the lens of fear. Oh no, when you Google it and you, you know, look up on WebMD, what's wrong? And it's all this scary stuff, all these scary predictions. And then you get sucked into this just black hole of fear and uncertainty, which like you said, more conflict. And it's the, the cascade of conflicts of being worried about what's going on with your body that can add to you know, and that's why, you know, what you mentioned and how other ways of approaching it were, if you told a person, this makes sense that your body has done this, this, this adaptation, uh, you might have some discomfort because yes, when your body adapts and you go through a healing process, you know, just like if you break a bone and you go through the, the healing process, isn't inherently fun, it's uncomfortable. And you have to take time out from what your normal life is like. But when you understand that it's healing rather than the idea that there's something nefarious, various and, you know, malignant in your body that's taking over, that's where you start to fear it. And you have this combative, you know, attack, I need to attack the cancer, I need to kill it, I need to destroy Mm -hmm. it. But if you understand it, and you realize it's part of you, and it's happening for an, you know, an intentional purpose, you start to work with it in a more wise way. Right. So in this initial Dr. Hammer, right, he's the one who started basically like observing cancer patients and doing essentially like a study on what other factors were at play how many how many people was he able to observe and and then did he start to help people like process those those past conflicts and were there like what are the findings afterwards of like maybe changing that diagnosis yeah he studied tens of thousands of people and the interesting thing is that he wouldn't write it down it didn't make it into his body of work if it didn't happen every single time and so that's what what really sets his work apart from all of conventional and alternative medicine because you know there 
conventional medicine works with statistics. Oh, it's, you know, 20, 30, 40% of people who smoke get cancer or eat, you know, processed meat, get this type. It's all percentage. And so when there's a percentage of something, it's not a law. It's some people, some of the times get this in this situation. He found that it's 100%. You know, if a person has a certain um, tissue adaptation, a certain cancer process in their body, they always have an impact in their brain. So he did CT brain scans and he was able to see there are these circle formations in the brain at the location where the shock occurred. And this brain region always controls the organ. And so a person always has a shock always has an impact in their brain and there's always adaptation on the organ level. And so this can be objectively verified, which is just mind blowing that this isn't standard procedure because this has been around now for 40 years. It's no longer new. It's It's been around, but it has been, you know, they, they refuse to look at it. The, the medical professionals, he presented his thesis to the university of Tübingen, And they're just like, we can't, we're not looking at this. You know, you had, he got his medical license taken away because he wouldn't renounce his discoveries. And so unfortunately there hasn't, there isn't as much like widely available uh, of his research. A lot of it is still in German. So I haven't gotten my hands on all of like his materials because there's, you know, licensing and, you know, copyright and all of that of getting it out and getting it translated. So there are some barriers to having access to all of the work that he did to come to his conclusions, but it happened 100% of the time. And what he was able to help people do was to see what's happening in your body makes sense, help them to connect it to the original conflict. And if that conflict is resolved, typically um, by the time a person has symptoms, usually the conflict has already been resolved. In like 60 to 80% of cases, by the time you have symptoms, your conflict has been resolved. And now you just need to basically chill out and not freak out while your body is in the healing process. And so, you know, he helped people to do that. He helped people to understand, you know, um, in my um, a part of this organization that I co-founded with Andy Lockmears, it's called GHK Global. And we're just a group of practitioners from all different backgrounds who use the five biological laws. And so we have um, different speakers come in, people who like knew Dr. Hammer. And, you know, they said that he just had this very just calming presence and he helped people to just like feel comfortable and trust that their body was doing the right thing and understand, you know, how to work with their experience um, and to to understand that their body isn't turning on them. You know, that's one of the, the most heartbreaking things from my perspective is that a person thinks that their body has turned against them and that their body is doing something wrong or their body is trying to harm them or autoimmune. And, you know, and so they, they start to attack parts of their body rather than understanding that your body would never attack you. Your body, its number one goal is for you to survive and to reproduce. That's like the imperative of nature is survive and reproduce. And so your body is doing everything it it can to help you to survive and reproduce. It will never go against um, those most basic functions. And, um, And so, yeah, so he did that with people. He helped people to understand how their body functions And that's, uh, you know, the goal now is to teach people. So teaching people how to understand what your body is doing so that you feel empowered if you do have an adaptation that conventional medicine might diagnose as something scary. You were saying how he um, didn't like record uh, unless it was 100% of the time, right? So was it that he would look at a specific type of cancer, let's say, and unless Basically, he wouldn't attribute to say like this cancer is caused by this conflict unless every single patient he looked at had that. So were there 
any types of cancers where that wasn't the case? Like, does it seem like there's any like exceptions, I guess, to, to this idea? Not to my knowledge. Yeah. It's my understanding that for every case, everything's to this chart behind me. It's currently not available on the website that I refer people to because I know people will be like, where do I get the chart? <laughs> it's, it says it's currently unavailable. But yeah, he, w- he wouldn't put it in the chart. He wouldn't write it down as a biological law if it didn't happen in 100% of the cases that he's. And so I'm not aware of any. Um, you know, I know that obviously this is there. I don't think he addressed every single possible thing that could ever go on in the body. I don't think he, you know, I think up until his passing, he was still, you know, discovering things and making connections and writing things mm-hmm. down and, you know, bringing it all together. And so I think that obviously more can be done in this realm. You know, just unfortunately, there aren't you know, tons of money and there no pharmaceutical company is going to uh, put money into medical students or, you know, medical professionals studying this mm. because it inherently, you know, and I, and it's not that this work is anti-medicine because, you know, Dr. Hammer was a, a traditional medical doctor and there are very wise uses of conventional medicine in conjunction with understanding how you, but you want to support the functions of the body and work with it. And when you understand it, you're able to utilize conventional care in a way that actually makes sense rather than just, you know, um, let's take out everything. Let's poison everything. Let's burn out everything. When you get that the body is doing what it's doing for a reason, you can support. And yes, you may have a surgery and that surgery could be very, very helpful to remove a blockage to, you know, to remove something that's causing ongoing conflict. Surgery can be wonderful. You know, certain, you know, medication can be wonderful in certain phases of the, you know, the healing to help you to survive it or to help you to be more comfortable. It's just that you use it differently when you get this stuff. It's not that you never use it and it's just forbidden. Um, you use it in a, in a smart way. Right. Yeah. So what do you, what have you seen have been the biggest, like, so when he, when Dr. Hammer tried to, you know, bring the, these findings to uh, like larger, you know, medical institutions, what was some of the criticism or kind of like resistance to adopting, at least that you're aware of? Well, my understanding is that they just, they won't formally approve it. And he said that behind closed doors, he got information from people that they, they verified it, that they were like, yeah, this is legit, but they can't formally consent to it or even submit his thesis and allow it to be, you know, a thing that people are seriously considering. I think that they, um, it says that even in in medical schools in Europe, one of the um, teachers says that, you know, they, they warn people against Tomer and it's like, you better watch out if you want to have your license take, you know, like don't, don't do his stuff. Don't Mm -hmm. listen to him. Don't. And so it's very much, um, especially in Europe, not talked about people don't use it. Um, you know, it's not verified. There are places now in, in South America that I'm hearing. There's actually, I think, a college in Nicaragua where you can take a class on the five biological laws. And so um, it's it's coming up in other ways. But as far as like a formal verification, it just, you know, when you understand how far reaching, how like this represents such a fundamental, like upending of every conventional theory about health, about germs, about cancer, about mental illness, literally everything is different. Absolutely yeah. everything. And you, if this were to be accepted, if this were to be verified by professional medical boards, they'd have to rewrite all of the books, all of the right. books, all of the colleges, we'd have to start from the ground up. Yeah. Do you think part of it might've been because at least you said this was discovered around like 40 years ago? That 
at that time they just didn't know how to deal with like the psychological aspect of things because I mean at least you probably maybe know better but I feel that what I've noticed is sort of the new modalities that help people to like truly process trauma and you know emotional hardship whatever that they're going through feels like a relatively new field at least in the way that it's being accepted so it sounds like both could be true but essentially that like maybe they just didn't understand the tools of how to help people process or heal in this way because it was so different from the conventional system. I would I don't know if that's the exact reason. It's for me it seems more not that oh we don't because even if you don't have the tools it's like okay well we can verify that this is going on. We're going to reject the whole thing because we don't have tools to help people. Well, you know, if if there was a good faith effort to to look at the the findings, look at the research, look at the consistency. Like if you're a good scientist and if you are, you know, a decent human, you're going to say, all right, well, we don't know how exactly to help these people, but this is making sense. And this guy seems to, you know, know what he's talking about. Let's let's follow this. But I do think that there is not good faith. I think that there are nefarious reasons for not allowing this to get out there. I don't think it's simply we don't have the tools. So we're just going to, you know, we're just going to ignore this because we can't help people in this realm. There could have been some element of that, but that, you know, from my perspective, I don't think that that's kind of the main reason that it wasn't accepted. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, it knowing what we know about how, you know, the medical industry works, rural pharma, like the very multi-layered way that specifically conventional and like Western medicine has evolved to a point where today, and this is like what we've learned for what a lot of people have learned in the last two years in the context of COVID was like, why is this a field that we can't question? Like, why can't I be skeptical, right? Like, it's a very weird dynamic that has just gone on for decades, right? Of like, you can't question it. You're not allowed to question the authorities. But basically just being like blind trust, just do it and don't ask questions. And I'm curious, I think, I mean, for me, I see definitely that having to do with profit, right? And and pharma being a very big piece of that uh, as to why that would be, right? Because if people have the knowledge that, oh, you can actually heal in this alternate way, that doesn't, you know, mean that you're on a prescription list for life, right? Or that you have to be in a sterile environment for months on end, right? If you give people that information, a lot of people lose money. So I, I see that very much as like an obvious reason. I'm curious what else you might see or kind of like postulate as to why the conventional field has become one where questioning is not welcome. Well, everything about, you know, conventional medicine, it goes against nature. And that's just the, it it is, it's this way of thinking. It's a philosophical approach where if, you know, that's what allopathy is. If the fever's high, we bring it down. If you're having diarrhea, we stop it up. If you're not going, we give it to you. You know, it's like, it's all reversal of nature, you know, and it overrides what the natural way is rather than studying nature and observing nature. It's like, let's seek to override nature. And so it's, it's a very fundamental philosophical difference in the way of approaching something. Mm -hmm. And so when you have a person who is just, you know, seeing this seems to be how nature operates, this is how we can work with nature. You know, if you've got people who they're, everything about their paradigm, everything about their worldview is overriding nature, is seeing, you know, error and problem. And here we come in, have the savior mentality. We come in and I save you, I rescue you, you know, like 
for example, like everything having to do with obstetrics and, you know, bringing babies into the world, like most of the problems with like babies being born are caused by the medical industry and the way that they approach birth and and mothers and monitoring and all of that. So they create the problem. And then here they come in. Oh, they're, they're the rescuers. Oh, the, the NICU doctors and the, this and that, Oh, we're so thankful for you. It's like, they, they literally cause the problem with the way that they approach all of birth. They, and, but then they also get to wear the crown of like, we've saved you from this problem. It's like, they create the problem, you know, they scare you, they freak you out. And then they come in with their, their, you know, remedies and their surgeries and their medications. And they, they act like the savior. And so it's, it's just, it's a very interesting, different way of looking at the body when you understand the body is wise. And that's why I liked, you know, and I was drawn to chiropractic because the whole philosophy of chiropractic is different than conventional medicine. It is the body is wise. The body has innate intelligence. The body built itself. The body is older and wiser than the educated mind of man. And so man comes in and says, I know things about the body. I've studied dead bodies. I've dissected bodies. I you know, I'm looking at things under microscopes. We're looking at dead things. We look at dead bodies. We look at dead, you know, tissue cultures. You know, we look at these dead things and we think we know something about the living body, mm. but it's it's just a completely different way of understanding and revering nature and, and knowing that we come from nature and that nature has so much to teach us. And we only know a little tiny bit, like we've only had language for a few thousand years, you know, let alone the, the millions of years of wisdom that are embedded into the body. And there's just no regard for that in conventional medicine. Medicine, you know, thinks we know stuff about the body and how it works. And we know this much. Yeah. Yeah. I think framing it as basically like a a fundamental philosophy difference explains a lot of it because, I mean, this is why for me personally, I've mentioned this story a few times on on the show because it really was kind of my like awakening, I guess you'd call it, when I was put on birth control pills at 17. And this is so shocking years later to know this. The reason why was not like, oh, I'm, you know, sexually active to not get pregnant. It's because I hadn't gotten my period yet. So their solution, the gyno solution was go on the pill to quote unquote, get your period, which is like not at all how it works. And so it's insane to me that back then I had no idea, you know, my mom didn't know better. Like it's, you know, I don't necessarily blame myself because it's like, I wasn't told this information. And years later I do some reading. I I stumble upon um, beyond the pill by Dr. Jolene Brighton. And I go down the rabbit hole and I'm like, Oh my God, this doctor did not tell me, you know, that there are other ways that maybe I could, I needed to gain weight or maybe it was a hormone imbalance issue. It was no, here's the pill. And that solves the problem. And from that perspective, you know, years on, I start to see that it is, it's not always like, you know, these are evil people in this industry and they want to hurt you. Like It's not really always like, yes, there are bad people in every industry. Like there's going to be some of that that gets swayed. And, you know, we know that some doctors or gynecologists are making, you know, they're getting paid by the pharma companies to push the pill. Right. But that it might also be a fundamental difference in how we look at the body and how we look at health. And that is huge because that's the starting point that basically says how we do everything else. And it was perfect timing that just the other day I saw this other, or I think it was literally yesterday. Um, again, Dr. Zach Bush, he, he's such a like eloquent, passionate speaker. And he always like puts his videos over like nature. And so you're like, wow. But um, he was talking about how everything 
we know, most of the things we know, this is what you're speaking to about health is from isolating cells, right? Like isolating the organ or whatever it is. And he was saying how that's not how we work. If a cell is in isolation, it dies. It doesn't, like no part of the human body survives on its own. That's not how we work, right? And so that was such a light bulb moment, again, of being like, that is such an important starting point for how we frame our philosophy of health. And that's going to determine like all the pieces after it. So it's very, very interesting to look at, I think also to put some faith back into it, because I do think, you know, people have like family members who are doctors or aunts and uncles or whatever, and they know people and it's it's hard to want to be like, oh, they're all these like evil, wrong people who are hurting us. Some of that is true, maybe, but most of the time, maybe it's just a fundamental difference and how we look at things. Yeah, definitely. Like, and that's the thing is most people like they're as far as like the nefarious, it's not just the average doctor. You know, there is, uh, I do think there, there may be agendas and people who, you know, who again are profiting and they're like, mm, we don't want to go that philosophy route because that changes our, you know, our income strategy. And so the people who say, uh, write the curriculum for the American Medical Association and lots of stuff that happened in the early 1900s, people don't realize how the AMA and how like the public opinion of alternative doctors. So, you know, um, I'm a chiropractor. And so what's like the, the average Joe kind of uh, joke against it? You're a quack. You're a quack. You're not a real doctor, you know, and that that whole idea literally was implanted by the American Medical Association. They paid to demean holistic and alternative doctors in the media like they had it put into TV shows and they, you know, they had it get out there. They had it was called the Committee on Quackery basically to discredit alternative health professionals. And so when a person says that, you know, oh, you're a quack comments on social media, you know, I can't help but laugh because you you are so convinced of of this falsehood because you it was it was meant to be that way. It was you were this opinion that you have, this perspective that you think is original was paid for and implanted into your head. You know, and so I, I think that people who are, you know, work in the medical industry, they they do want to help people and they think they are helping people. But like you said, it's a fundamental philosophical difference. They're not paying attention to the fact that everything that they do for the most part overrides nature and, and isn't supporting the body and isn't understanding the context in which these symptoms are arising. And so, yes, do some people get symptomatic relief while, you know, utilizing pharmaceuticals? Yes, but big picture, are they actually getting to the cause? And that's the thing is medicine can't get to the cause because they don't know what the cause is. All they do is deal in the realm of effects and they use, you know, pharmaceutical petrochemicals to, you know, uppers downers is basically what they play in. It's like we bring it up, we bring it down using drugs. And so that's that's the whole fundamental philosophy of that way of treating the body. And so, yes, while the people aren't bad, it is I, I say it's, you know, good people, bad paradigm, you know, good people, bad philosophy of, of understanding how the body works. Right. Yeah. Which which is very common even in our culture too, right? Like what we're currently seeing is the cause of so much cultural division and polarization around just ideology is the fact that we've developed a culture, which hopefully I think is is starting to change now, where your goodness and your morality and all of that social acceptance was like the dangling carrot that was like, but you have to agree with us over here or else like you're not, you know, you're not with us. You're not part of the tribe, right? It like kind of 
it leverages the human need, which is very normal to want to be like liked and approved and loved. Right. And we like use that as a weapon against people to get them to agree with us. Right. So it's like whatever dominant idea is present in the mainstream, it's there's no incentive for people to critically think about it, because if they do and not always, but they might arrive at something that's completely different from like what all their friends think, what the university is teaching them. And that's very scary, right? It's against your your sense of safety, right? So it's like a very, it's very clear once you understand like sort of the psychology and the sociology of, of groups and people and how we all interact. And I think, I mean, that's why it's such a bold choice to be like a, a free thinker, critical thinker these days, because you're going to probably go against the grain at some point. They do get scared. They get scared of, yeah. you know, even if, even if this, even if getting the vaccine doesn't make sense to them, even if their own eyes are proving to them, it's like, this doesn't make sense to me. The, they, they do, they fear being ostracized. They fear rejection so much that they will do something that doesn't make sense to them because they, they want to stay with the pack. They want to stay with the crowd. They don't want to be rejected. And so, you know, it's kind of a a step of personal evolution. And a lot of people have done that the last two years have lost family, lost friends, because they're like, I just can't do what doesn't make sense to me for the sake of being accepted by, you know, by the pack, by the, the masses, by the crowd. And that is, you know, it's a bold step, um, but it's also it's very empowering because you realize how strong you are, that you don't need, you know, the the social approval. You don't need the reinforcement from everybody. You don't need the crowd in order to be OK. Right. And you'll likely find a more aligned community that actually accepts you for, you know, not just blindly agreeing. Right. So you've spoken about the biological laws. There's five of them. Right. And this is these are directly tied to Dr. Hummer's findings after sort of just, you know, the research that he did. Can you explain those those laws? Yeah. So the first one is the it's called the iron rule of cancer. And this is the connection between the psyche, the brain and the organs. And so when you have the conflict, when the thing happens and catches you off guard immediately, like you're whole body, like your psyche, isn't just your mind. Your psyche is your whole beingness. It's the parts of you that you are aware of. It's the parts of you. You're not aware of the parts of you that are monitoring the temperature in the room and the sounds coming from different directions. And so your psyche picks up on a shock. Something happens, catches you off guard. That's one of the big hallmark things of a conflict shock is that it's unexpected. You weren't ready for it. And so this is the difference between stress. So it's not just stress that causes these adaptations. Stress or, you know, stress could be things that you're anticipating. You know, you're going to be busy. You know, you've got a lot going on. Oh, I'm so stressed out. That's different than, oh, that was unexpected. I, I wasn't prepared for that. So there's this element of being caught on the wrong foot, not really prepared for it, which causes, you know, in that moment, you can't process it. You're like, I, I don't know what to do about this. And so the body steps in. And that's the thing. So your ent- every organ has kind of a, a super mode that it can go into. It can transform and adapt itself to better suit this shocking situation. So like I said before, whether it's a death fright or a loss or a separation or an indigestible morsel or, you know, depending on what happens, a different area in the brain is activated. There is an impact, an energetic change in a certain area of the brain, and then the organ starts adapting. So that's, you know, and this all happens at once. It's not psyche, brain, and organ. It's a simultaneous single thing that happens. And sometimes you'll, you can actually know, like, you know, like a feeling of just like a lightning bolt, like 
shocked you? Like something just like came through your whole body when something, you know, you got some news, you got a text message, you got a phone call, you heard something, you found something out that was just like, this is my, my life is different now. Like something has happened and now your body starts to adapt. So every moment, you know, this moves into the second biological law, which is the law of two phases. And so the body, you know, during the day, the body just that it's normal. We have a normal day night rhythm. During the day, our body is more sympathetic active, which is the fight or flight nervous system. So this is when you are hunting and gathering and you're going out and you're doing things and you're more high energy. And then the parasympathetic, that's rest and digest. That is when, you know, you are feed and breed. And so this is when the body slows down parasympathetic repair. So during the day, conflict act or sympathetic and then parasympathetic. That's our normal day night rhythm. When you have a conflict, when the thing shocks you and catches you off guard, your body shifts into a heightened sympathetic mode. And so you're not hungry, you're preoccupied in your thinking, your hands and feet are cold, you're waking up at 3 a.m., wide awake, can't fall back asleep because you've got an unresolved conflict. And the tissue changes on the body level and the compulsive thinking that you're doing about the conflict, it's all meant to help you resolve it because your body is like, we have to resolve this as quickly as possible. We have to resolve this as quickly as possible. But if you stay in the conflict for a long time, you know, the tissue changes on the organ level depends on the intensity and the duration of the conflict. So if you have a conflict and it lasts um, 10 seconds, you know, you're going to have like, you know, a little sneeze or a little tiny, you, you, you probably won't even be aware of the adaptations. But then if it's a minute, five minutes, five hours, five days. You know, so this is where when we're having conflicts that are lasting for a longer and longer period of time, that's when the adaptations become more intense. And so really one of the first best ways is to pay attention to something like a sneeze. So a sneeze is the healing crisis of a stink conflict. So something happened and it annoyed you. It frustrated you. You felt fed up. This stinks. I'm annoyed. It could have been an actual physical smell that you didn't like. It could have been a situation that just stunk. And you have this experience and then a couple, you know, you pay attention to when you sneeze and say, oh, what, what was I annoyed about? What was I frustrated about a few minutes ago? If you have a huge sneezing fit, look, look at what was I frustrated about a couple hours ago? You know, so this is how you start to pay attention to how this works. So during the phase A, the beginning phase of healing. So this is called the conflict active phase. The C conflict active is when you are in heightened fight or flight. This is when the adaptation is occurring. That goes on until you resolve it. You find your wallet. Let's say your wallet's missing and you're freaking out and you're like, oh my gosh, my money. And I'm going to have to call the bank and I'm going to have to do all this stuff. And how am I going to get on the plane? Because I don't have my license. And oh my God, that you're, you're panicking and you're freaking out about it. And then you find it. It was just under the seat of your car and you go, oh my goodness, all of that. I've got all worked up for nothing. Oh, you finally, you resolve the conflict and the body, whatever tissues were adapted during the conflict active phase. Now we shift into healing. This is post-conflict phase A and the body has to start repairing the tissue. So if we lost tissue, so let's say your bronchioles got wider or your urethra got wider because you had a territorial marking, someone was crossing your boundary, somebody was getting in your space and you're like, get out of my space. So your urethra widens so that you can pee. <laughs> so you can mark your territory better. Um, and then oh, there's a resolution. That person left, no longer an issue. I found my wallet, no longer an issue. Then the body starts to repair. It repairs the tissue. And now when you're in that repair phase, this is when you feel symptoms. So this is when you are in the healing phase from a territorial marking conflict, the urethra widened during the conflict. Now it has to go back to its normal size. And so when it's in the process of going back to its normal size, all healing processes require fluid. 
And so there's fluid at the area where the healing is, is taking place. And so if your urethra has fluid and there's swelling there, it's going to be a little difficult to urinate. There's going to be burning and sensations and uncomfortability during that phase. But it's not because bacteria crawled up your urethra because of poor hygiene. It's not because you did something wrong. It's because you had an experience, your body adapted, and now your body is repairing that adaptation to set you back to normal. And so during that phase, though, that's when most people think they're sick. This is when they think they have a problem. This is when they reach for, you know, different pharmaceuticals. They try to take something to get rid of an infection. But what's happening is your body is just in the healing phase. It's repairing itself. You know, when you take like an antibiotic, for example, it doesn't even kill the bacteria. What it does is it shifts your brain from being in the healing mode back into sympathetic activity. And so that seems to ease the problem. It it does. A lot of times people will take an antibiotic and, oh my goodness, I feel so much better. But it's not because you killed the bacteria that were doing something bad. It's because the antibiotic has like an anti-inflammatory property where it turns the sympathetic system back on. And so it seems to get rid of the infection, but that's not actually what's happening. And that's why when you understand the body in this way, you understand the impact of pharmaceuticals in a new and different way. So halfway through the healing phase, there is something called the epicrisis. So this is a big squeeze. When the body goes through this big squeeze, you'll have a spasm, a sneezing fit, a coughing fit, you know, a heart attack, some kind of big event happens during this big squeeze. And the whole purpose of that is to squeeze that fluid. Remember, I said all healing happens in a fluid environment. The fluid swells to the point of maximum swelling. You can think of this even like the birth process. When the mother gets to that point of maximum swelling, we're at that maximum point, then there's a big squeeze. And that big squeeze happens on the organ and on the brain to squeeze out the fluid. And then the body goes into the second um, PCLB, which is post-conflictal lysis, the second phase of it. And then we return to normal. So that's the second biological law, which is the law of two phases. The first was the psyche brain organ. Now the third, do you have any questions before I go on? I'm this, I'm loving this. I'm so fascinated. My, my, well, I guess what is the, the fluid? What is that different depending on the organ or what exactly is that fluid? That's what builds up or that's what is trying to like heal. Is that like, what's the fluid exactly? So the fluid, so all healing. So when the body is in healing, I mean, even when you, you know, I had a burn a couple a week ago or so. And so it was, it's because you got to think in this area when I'm, you know, bringing new cells in and taking cells out, it's like, you know, like the water is this wonderful medium through which stuff can go in and out. And so there's swelling at the area. And so we need that, that fluid needs to be there in order for the healing to take place. And so every organ when it's in healing, and that's what, you know, pain is like when the fluid is there, they're stretching, they're stretching of that region. Now there's a, there's a very interesting biological program of the kidney collecting tubules. And this is why, you know, a person could be in a healing phase. And then all of a sudden it gets really, really intense if you hold on to water. So when a person is feeling isolated, abandoned, kicked out, left out, they're feeling like a fish out of water. Their kidney collecting tubules say, oh my goodness, this is, this is dangerous to be a fish out of water. It's dangerous to not be included. It's dangerous to be rejected. So it holds on to water. And so if you're holding on to water 
when your body is in healing from, you know, a territorial marking conflict or a territorial fear conflict, this is how, um, like bronchitis. So if a person's got, you know, they've got a dry cough and they've got, you know, what they call bronchitis, which is the body in a healing phase from the bronchial mucosa eroding due to a territorial fear conflict. Now you're in healing, you're coughing, you've got tickles in your lungs, um, but you're, you get freaked out. Maybe you've got the, you know, you've got the C word. Maybe you, you have, oh, you tested positive for it. Oh, now you're in the hospital and you're what? You're isolated. No one can see you. You are, you know, you're in this place. You're, you're, you're told you've got this very scary disease. You can't see your friends and family because you might be contagious. No one. And so you're feeling isolated. And so this literally isolation is the worst thing you can do for a person who is ex experiencing symptoms, because once they feel isolated and shut off and all alone, they start holding on to water. And so if your lungs are in healing, if your bronchial mucosa is in healing, so like we said, all that healing, there's already fluid going on in that, in that area. But if you hold on to water, more fluid goes there and it creates pneumonia. It, it advances what was just bronchitis into this thing. And it's not because bacteria got in there. Bacteria, and this is actually the fourth biological law, bacteria are helpers. Bacteria are there during the healing phase to help the body repair. They are microsurgeons. They um, break down tissue. They help build up tissue. They are our little workers that only work when the body is in the healing phase. When the body is healing, bacteria become active. During the conflict active phase, the bacteria, they're there, but they're dormant. They're not doing anything. Most of the time when we're in normal homeostasis, bacteria are just hanging out in our tissues. They just, they're just there. They're not doing anything. They only activate when the brain tells them to. And the brain tells them to when the body is in healing. And so the bacteria, you know, when, when something's warm, so warm, feverish, fluid filled, that's when the bacteria are doing their, their work. You know, uh, they, they can't function. They're not doing their work when, when you're cold and there's no fluid. That's not when the bacteria work. That's why they call it an infection or inflammation. That That is all evidence of healing. That's all evidence of tissue repair. Right. Versus like looking at like, oh, there's this, you know, burn or whatever bacteria is there. Bacteria like must be a part of the problem. And instead, it's like actually the body is sending it there for the process of healing. Yes. Wow, that's a huge shift. The other question I had, which then I'll, I'll let you continue, I and mean, you might answer this in the other ones, but it sounds like really part of the issue as well when people, you know, you have like the the conflict, right? And you go into a sympathetic response that if generally, let's say this specific person or most people don't have the knowledge of how to resolve that conflict, how to process, how to get better how to like regulate themselves then that's where the system sy symptoms would get like exacerbated or last a long time and so i mean automatically i'm thinking of you know like the point of breath work right as a modality is to help you build a nervous system that can handle ups and downs in a much more regulated way like you can adapt very easily that's something i noticed in me is i when i started doing uh, breath work more often. I just actually finished getting certified, which is very exciting. But I learned so much and I was like, wow, that makes sense as to why I adapt very quickly to my environment. And when something does happen to me, I, you know, as compared to years ago, I'm just able to get through it a lot easier or a lot quicker. And even like the the biometric of um heart rate variability, mine's like incredibly high. And when I like am consistent with my breathwork practice, it it improves. But so 
to me, it's becoming very obvious to think why as a, you know, as a society of most people, why we have so much disease is maybe part of that is because people don't know how to regulate themselves, how to process their emotions, how to process the conflict, right? Like even to an extreme where people think that you need to be in a safe space all the time and never be triggered. So then by the point that you do have something happen to you, your body literally doesn't know what to do. Like you're freaking out. And so of course you're going to get sick, right? Like that to me, at least is, is you know, a, a light bulb of like, maybe part of the problem is that people don't know how to heal, at least, especially from an emotional sense, right? A lot of this is tied to how you process or not or don't process whatever you're you're experiencing. Totally. Yes. Things like breath work, anything that improves heart rate variability, that's your ability to chill out after something shocking happens. If you don't have those skills and if you stay in the conflict and see a lot of people are also dealing with, you know, this inability to emotionally process things because of early life trauma. So, you know, another thing Dr. Homer discovered is that, you know, when you have early life trauma, when you are bombarded with multiple shocking things that are unresolved, the brain, you, they, you develop something called a constellation and a constellation is like, I had a conflict, you know, about sexuality. I had a conflict about, you know, something being taken from me or my parents getting divorced or, you know, something, these things happen and they're unresolved. And so the the brain actually shifts into um, a super sense. And so this is when people develop um, autism or OCD or, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, all of these, we call the mental health disorders, but they are simply expressions of a lot of conflict. And when this happens, you get emotionally frozen at the age when the constellation occurred. So when that second conflict happened, you're locked at age eight, you're locked at age 10. And so, you know, you tend to emotionally respond from that age, you know, rather than, you know, you might be 30, but emotionally, you know, you might be eight that you, because you were frozen at that point in time. And that's why, you know, inner work and healing and developing these skills and these abilities is, is to help kind of coach yourself through how to process, how do I handle, how do I deal with the stuff of life? Like I, I didn't have the tools before, but learning those tools changes. It changes how you process things, your, your ability to see, like, I can work with this, this, this resilience, this attitude, this energy, it just, it's different. And, and so those skills are learnable. There's so many tools. Breathwork is amazing. Um, there's so many things that a person can do to help them. Even if you have, you know, been emotionally frozen early in life, there are things you can do to, to help yourself so that you can adapt to the life stuff that happens instead of being frozen in fear, confused, uncertain, not sure what to do about it. That's, that's why this work for me is so much about personal responsibility and empowerment. You know, even if bad stuff has happened to you, um, you still can overcome. You can shift your attitude. You can change the way that you're approaching it so that you can feel empowered. You know, because if you stay in a victim narrative that bad things happen to me, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, I'm a victim of the things that have happened. That attitude and that energy, it's not going to necessarily help you deal with life, you know, traumas and circumstances. It kind of cripples you even further. It's like, gosh, life really is unfair. And then you kind of get into a self-pity mode and feeling bad for yourself. And, you know, and it's understandable that people do that. You know, there's nothing wrong with the person that does that. It's simply, they haven't been exposed to tools and they haven't kind of embarked on that journey of personal responsibility so that they're like, listen, this is my life. This is my body. There's gotta be something I can do about this. I can learn how to, you know, work with my breath 
to, to regulate my nervous system. Like that's such a cool thing to be able to do. And what is it? It's you're believing in yourself that I can do it. I don't need someone else to do it for me. I'm going to learn how to take control of my mind and my body to affect a change. And when a person feels effective, that means like I, I can do something and it works. <laughs> you know, so many things we've been, life has kicked us and we're like, there's nothing I can do. I'm broken and not, nothing, you know, nothing I do ever works out. That really it's a demoralizing state of consciousness. And so you've got to find it within you to, to shift that state of consciousness, to believing that it's possible for you to respond even a little bit better than you have mm-hmm. before. And that's how, you know, it's just that belief in yourself that I could do this differently. I could process this in a way that feels better. And, you know, so that's a lot of my work is focused around that with people of like seeing yourself in a different light, speaking to yourself in a different way, viewing things from a new perspective that you've never considered before, using your physiology to break out of, you know, panic and anxiety and fear um, and knowing that you can do it. And it's all within your power to do it. No one has to do it for you. Right. What have you seen has been one of the most powerful or most effective, you know, modalities or ways to help people process? Like, let's say for specifically, like when someone does experience a conflict or a shock, what essentially like what would you recommend as like something that the person can do to like help their body actually process it, like resolve the conflict? Yeah. So for me, um, the the core is awareness. You have to pay attention to what did you tell yourself this means? What story do you have around this event? Because there are things you're telling yourself about the fact that this happens, that this means for you now, and you're making a lot of assumptions. And so you have to like reveal those assumptions to yourself because things that happen, there are a million ways to process it. There's a million things that can come from it, but we tend to, based on our early life trauma and our early life programming, we tend to see it as because this happened now, this is inevitable. And it's kind of looking at, is this, is that actually true? (laughs) Is this actually true that how I'm seeing this and the things I'm telling myself and the assumptions I'm making about the fact that this event happened, is that really true? And so you have, it's, it's, so this awareness allows you to start questioning. And as you question, you're like, well, maybe it's not true. And so as you start to break down your deep assumptions that because this thing happened, that now I can't have this, now I can't get what I want. Now I am, you know, broken, or because this happened, I'm not going to be able to get anything that I want in life. What if that's not true? And so it's by questioning. So when a shock happens, you know, one, it's just acceptance too. It's like this thing happened. It's okay that stuff happens. We're all human. Stuff happens to us, shocking things, loss, friends, family, pets, you know, you name it. Like life is, is can be random and unexpected, but it is. It's how we handle it. Another person in the world that could have had that thing happen and handled it in a different way. Well, and you'd say, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, well, if that person handled it in this way, don't you think that you there are other ways you could handle it? And so it's just showing a person their choices. Because most people, when you have a conflict and you're locked into that conflict, um, it's because you're not seeing the choices that are available to you. And so awareness helps you to see the choices that you do have and that you can, I can make a different choice. I could see this in a different way. I could experience this in a different way. So that's that's my approach that I use with people is really helping them to become aware of the stories and the assumptions that they are locked into surrounding the traumatic event. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then from that point of awareness, I mean, it's I'm assuming it like depends basically on what type of conflict we're talking about, but maybe like, can you give an example of, you know, a a conflict occurs and 
we're in a state where we can recognize that there's a lot of different options available to us. We don't just have to like live out the story that has been a reality for us. Like what would then be that choice that you make to like resolve? Yeah. Anything that solves the problem. It's like, let's get solution oriented. You know, what would solve this problem? What would shift, you know, what would have to be true in order for you to see this differently? And so there's, there's no like patent solution. There's not like one way of doing it. There's a million ways to do it. And that's why so many different modalities are wonderful. Some people may find, you know, that choice, that availability, that freedom, you know, through breath work that, that allows them to open their consciousness to a new idea. You know, that's the thing is your subconscious mind, your intuition knows the path, knows exactly what it's going to take to unravel this conflict, to get through it and to grow. And all, every conflict really, it's an invitation to evolve. It's an invitation to grow. And if you're having a chronic symptom or a chronic problem, um, it's because you haven't made that growth step. You haven't fully evolved past what this event in your life was meant to spark an evolution, a change within you, um, like a quantum shift in your in your beingness. And so what you know what medicine does is it prevents us from actually having to make that shift. We mm-hmm. augment it. We, you know, we take something to numb the pain, to numb the problem. You know, we take pharmaceuticals, we drink alcohol, we do something to like, it's like, I just don't want to, I don't want to evolve. I want to, you know, I want oh, take this away from me. I want an external something to fix me. And, you know, like evolution isn't an external fix. It's an internal shift. Mm-hmm. And so we have to move from this. I'm trying to suppress, um, distract. Um, I'm, I'm preventing this evolution from taking place. And that always causes suffering, you know, because nature wants to evolve. When stuff happens, you're not meant to sit in the stuff. You're meant to fundamentally reorient yourself to the reality in which you find yourself to grow, to become stronger and to go on and reproduce so that your offspring now have that knowledge. It's like, that's mm. that's how nature operates. But we have we've really made it easy and we are facilitating people staying in an unevolved state where they're in the conflict and in the conflict and in the conflict. And we say, here, take some pills that will make you feel better rather than helping to encourage them to go through whatever growth evolution process they need to go through to become a new person. And this is a thing. One of my mentors says like the conflict is resolved when it can't happen again. And so what does that mean when it can't happen again? So this is like when people or like kids will grow out of allergies or asthma. So they have allergies or asthma, like their whole childhood. And then they go to college and like, it's like, oh, they're gone. It's like, well, what happened? You weren't, you're not in your family environment anymore. And so you evolved beyond that family environment. You got out into the, the world and you're like, oh, this, this, this fear or whatever, this thing that stung to me, this out, this, I grew out of it because I realized what happened then can't happen now on a subconscious level. And so what we can do is we bring the conflict out of the subconscious mind and we look at it and we say, huh, how is it that this, there's a part of me that believes that this problem can still happen again. What would it take for me to feel deeply as though this couldn't happen to me again, because I'm so different. My life is so different. My situation is so different. And so, you know, it, it, sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's like, oh, well, of course. And it just falls away. Sometimes it takes a little bit of work. Sometimes there are, you know, um, internal like challenges you have to overcome, limiting beliefs, ideas, assumptions that you have to bring out into the light to say, oh, this is why I'm stuck at this level. This is why I haven't evolved beyond it because it's not just this thing. It's there's a whole constellation of beliefs and ideas about myself that I have to relinquish, that I have to 
find a new relationship to this problem in order to be that different person. And so, you know, th- it can be very simple or it can be very complex. Um, but the, the, the attitude is I'm here for it. Okay. All right, life, this is happening to me. The symptom keeps coming back. I haven't figured it out yet. I'm here for the growth process. I'm here to evolve. I'm here to become that version of myself who can say like, I, I did it. I, I dealt with this problem. I no longer feel as though it can happen to me. I'm such a, I'm a new person. And that's what so much of the healing is. It's becoming a new person. Yeah, I that shift, what you said about evolution being, you know, it's not an, an external fix. It's an internal shift, something like that. I, I'm going to go back and write that down because it was really good. But that to me speaks to the importance of intuition and, you know, developing that channel with yourself that mode of communication that gets really lost and i think i've heard you know there's um i've just heard in western medicine conventional medicine like the role of intuition is really not valued it seems at all (laughs) and you know i think it can be brushed aside because for some reason intuition has gotten this this reputation as being this like woo woo like spiritual whatever that doesn't matter and it's like no the intuition is your line of communication to both your body to like something greater to everything around you and in my personal experience and with people i know is like as you develop your intuition your understanding and your awareness of what's actually happening in your body gets so much more clear and true and you know interestingly like that is, I think, why a, such a root cause of understanding what that like the question is like, how do I heal this? Well, of course, the answer is like, I don't have a quick fix for you because you have to build communication with yourself, right? You have to understand yourself, you have to understand your environment and think more deeply, ask yourself questions about like, what am I going through right now? What has been the repeating pattern? And trying to pinpoint maybe that's a piece of why you don't feel good or maybe like that the root cause comes up when you have, you know, your mind pool is clear, right? Instead of like digging into it and trying to be like, oh my God, how do I fix this? Like you're not going to be able to find whatever's in there, but creating that like calm environment to build the intuition is is so key, which you it's really about fine tuning the instrument, right? Like the body and the mind needs to be in in that environment where you can access intuition. I wanted to ask, oh, you were going to continue with the laws. There was three, there was two more. Can you finish up with telling me about those? And those are fascinating me. Yeah. So the third biological law, this is the, it's the ontogenetic system of tumor and tumor, tumor equivalents. That's the name of it. But basically it's the layout of the different tissue types in the body. And so this, this blew my mind when I came across this, I was like, oh my gosh. So Dr. Hummer, you know, so when, when an embryo is forming. When the tissue differentiation starts to take place, it uh, differentiates into three different tissue types. Um, The endoderm, that's the yellow, the mesoderm, that's the orange, and the ectoderm, that's the red. And so those, those three tissue types will go on to become all of the organs in the body. And they evolved at different points in in human development. And so the oldest is the endoderm. And it's controlled from the oldest portion of the brain, which is the brainstem. And so the functions of the endodermal tissues are the most basic in nature. So this is breathing, eating, and reproducing. 
Um, and so these tissues are the, you know, certain, certain sex organs, certain are the elementary canals. So your digestive system, certain, so all of our tissues though, um, it's like a house. So a house is built out of all sorts of different pieces. We've got brick, we have wood, we've got, you know, sheetrock, we've got all these different pieces and different parts of the house have layers of all the different, um, tissue types essentially. And so our organs are built out of all three tissue layers in some cases. And so they're all interwoven together. So that's why we want to know when someone has a symptom, when they've got a dis-ease process, we want to know what is it? What tissue type is involved? So if someone just says, oh, they have breast cancer. Well, in the breast, there are the breast glands and then there are the breast ducts. And those tissues behave differently because they evolved at different portions in human development and they have different conflicts that are associated and activate those programs. And so this a compass helps us to understand. So the um, the yellow and then the then the orange. The orange is divided into two. There is old mesoderm and then new mesoderm. And so the old mesoderm behaves like the endoderm. So it behaves like the yellow. And those tissues grow during the conflict active phase. Like I mentioned before, we've got the breast gland, the um, like the colon, the lung alveoli like anything that's glandular, it's going to grow during the conflict active phase. So it produces more of whatever it produces, like salivary juices, digestive juices, you know, the lungs, it's producing alveoli to help absorb. So it's either producing more juices or helping to absorb something. That's what the, the old endodermal tissues are doing. And so when those conflicts, you'll see an impact in the brainstem, that's where it'll be located. Now, the old mesoderm, that's the cerebellum. And so these tissues, they function in protection. And so this is the deeper layer of the skin, the dermis, the pleura, the peritoneum. These are like protective coating layers in the body. And during the conflict active, they get thicker. They give you a thicker skin. They give you more protection, more defense. So both of these tissues grow during the conflict active phase. Then during the healing phase, they decompose. They break down using bacteria. Um, so tubercular bacteria, these ancient bacteria that live in the body, they just hang out there. They will decompose those extra tissue cells once the conflict has been resolved. Then we have the new mesoderm. And so this is the connective tissue of the body. So this is ligaments, bones, joints, muscles, fat, um, lymph, all of these tissues, they um, instead of growing during the conflict, they erode. So we lose tissue during the conflict. And uh, so we renovate this tissue, we lose the tissue during the active conflict, then during healing, the, the tissue becomes stronger than it was before. So you know how they say like after you break a bone, that it becomes the strongest bone in your body. Mm -hmm. um, this is how this, um, it's called the luxury group. So during the active conflict, there's tissue loss. Then during the healing phase, the lymph node gets bigger, the bone gets bigger, the muscle, everything gets bigger and stronger. And the conflict associated with it is self-devaluation. So if you are devaluing yourself, you are feeling not enough. I'm not enough. I'm broken. There's something wrong with me. The body hears that. The body doesn't understand not being enough. It says, okay, well, let me make you bigger. You know, let's make you stronger. Let's make you better able to, to cope in the world. And it does that biologically by breaking down your um, connective tissue and then rebuilding it from the inside out to make it stronger. 
Then we have the ectoderm. So this is the most recently um, evolved type of tissue, and it's controlled from the cerebral cortex, which is the newest portion of the brain. And conflicts from the ectoderm and the cerebral cortex have to do with relationships. Like it has to do with separation conflicts, territorial conflicts, sexual conflicts. And these tissues erode during the active phase. So an example of this would be the epidermis. So our external skin, the external skin is associated with a separation conflict. So we want contact with someone, we want touches, or we don't want contact. We do not want touches. And so during the active conflict, there is erosion. So let's say, you know, the, they say, and I remember hearing this as a kid, like, oh, if a cat loses her kittens, she forgets them. This is, this is the function of this separation conflict. When you have a separation conflict, when you, you know, lose a, a pet, lose a family member, the pain of that is so immense that the brain helps you to forget them. This is short-term memory loss. If it's a lot of separation conflicts, this is dementia. We completely like we forget everything because it's a way of coping with a lot of loss. And then on the skin, so if you are used to, you know, hugging your, your pet, hugging your parent, hugging someone, and then they're gone, there's erosion, there's loss of those tissue cells. So we numb the skin. So we lose our memory and we numb the skin basically to help with the pain, help to cope with the separation. Then when the separation is over, either we, we you know, deal with it, we, we, we let it go or we replace it. So let's say our loved one was at, you know, uh, traveling and they've returned and they've come back to you and you can embrace them again, then your body repairs. And when it's in the repair phase, you have an itchy rash, you know? And so if you, if that person keeps going away and coming back and going away and coming back, you have a chronic rash condition. So psoriasis or eczema or some type of skin thing, but it's because we're losing tissue and then rebuilding it and losing tissue and rebuilding it. So that's how the ectoderm works. And all of these things, like I said before, is all mapped out in the brain. And so depending, and this is why the first thing when I'm working with someone, what, what tissue are we dealing with? You know, is, is there, is it a rash? Is there discharge? Like what's the, what's going on? Cause that's going to help us to pinpoint which tissue level we're working with, which brain level, which will lead us to which conflict. So that's the third biological law. The fourth I mentioned briefly, which is the, um, the ontogenetic system of microbes, um, which is in the old brain, the bacteria, they help to break down and decompose um, tissues that are no longer needed. Bacteria also help with rebuilding. Now also uh, fungus. So things like candida. Uh, candida is not an infection. It's not a problem. It is a repair phase. It's, it's there just like mushrooms in the woods. We've got you know, fungus in the woods and bacteria, what does it do? Decomposes, it turns, you know, dead uh, tissue matter into soil, you know? So if we no longer need an adaptation, the body will decompose it because we don't need it anymore. Now, viruses, if they exist, so one, you know, if you've looked at all of the, the research that's been coming out and all of just the, the information about the uh, origination of the idea of viruses, it's all baloney. <laughs> you know, they've never actually isolated, verified that a virus exists and it causes illness. That's a fantasy. Now, what Dr. Hammer says is that viruses, this is taking place in the ectodermal tissues. And so um, if they exist, they're part of the repair phase. They're part of the adaptation process. And so this is something like Andy Kaufman and his, you know, what he's talked about with exosomes, that's, that's consistent. So the idea that the these exosomes, which are just cellular communication that takes place when there's an adaptation, that's in a, you know in alignment with this idea that there's not a thing there that caused the problem. It's a process 
of adaptation, you know, I, that's what I call viruses, evidence of adaptation, whatever it is that they're seeing there and they're calling a virus is simply something that occurs either during the cell breakdown or buildup process. And it's part of the normal, what, what happens in the body when these adaptations occur. So a virus in any regard, you know, HPV, HSV, you name it, it's just evidence of adaptation. So that's the fourth law. And then the fifth, the fifth biological law is the quintessence. And so this is this bigger kind of philosophical idea that there is no error in nature. There is nothing malignant in nature. There is nothing evil in nature that everything is purposeful and meaningful. Every symptom, there's a reason that it's happening. Um, and that by discovering that reason, you can see that there's there's this beautiful harmony that's always taking place, that the body's always working towards homeostasis. And so that just brings everything together that this is a meaningful process. Your body is not turning on you. Nothing is broken. It's all meaningful. So with the the last point, like, let's say, you know, in... Because there are cases, I guess, where like you come into contact with something in nature that's like poisonous in theory, right? Like humans aren't supposed to eat XYZ or a dog eats whatever. And then like, you know, they for some reason either get super sick or or in the worst case die. How does that maybe it's like a different thing? But because I think that makes sense to me that in the end, like it's all a process of what's supposed to happen. So but from there, like how, let's say with someone who has trouble with that idea of like, how can it be, you know, a meaningful, per- like perfect process if it results in like, I mean, I, I kind of get it because like the symptom is your body trying to process it. But, you know, if if we feel like something goes wrong to the extent where you get super sick and die, like how do you, what's the framing there of like trying to understand how that fits into this? Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up because there are three exceptions. So that symptoms that we can have symptoms in absence of a biological conflict is poisoning, um, deficiency, or injury. And so there are, those things are outside of GNM. So if you are poisoned um, by a snake bite, by, you know, drinking Drano, by drinking, you know, something that's like toxic for the body, you're going to throw up. Um, and it's not going to be because of a, a conflict. It's going to be that there was a poison that entered your body and now it's leaving. Um, and so there, there is some interesting sort of gray area when it comes to like what terrain theory people might say of like chronic exposure to, to poison. My, my understanding and what makes the most sense to me is like a legit poison is something that you know immediately. It's not like a long time and maybe it was the, all the glyphosate from all the Cheerios I ate. Maybe it was this, maybe it's, there's not going to be a question. It's going to be, I ate this and I, you know, like it was an immediate like poisonous reaction. That's, that's how I right. feel about what's actually poison, but even still. So if a snake bites you and and that poison gets in your body and you die, is that a wrongness? You know, when the snake eats a mouse, you know, it's unfortunate for the mouse, but it's kind of part of the bigger ecology of kind of nature functions. And so it's not an evil. It's just, you know, kind of part of part of life um, is, is the fact that these things can occur and do happen. So yeah, you have to really assess your relationship to, to life, to existence, to reality, to how you feel about things, you know, when it comes to, oh, it's so bad that this thing happened. Well, is it bad? You know, your body was able to adapt in a certain way. You weren't able to resolve the conflict, which is just something that happens. And this, you know, ended up in you passing 
20, 30 years prior to when you naturally would have. Yes. It, you know, that's one of those things where it's like, how, how does one deal with that? Is that good? Is that bad? Mm. Is that right? Is that wrong? Is that just a part of this unfolding mysterious thing that we're all here in these bodies doing this thing called life, right. you know, so you have to kind of advance to more philosophical discussion, you know, when it comes to that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And then, cause I guess there's definitely a difference between, I think this is also what people are now looking into with virology is trying to differentiate between you know what 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 are the cases where the human body came into um came into contact with like a toxin or like with something in its environment that then you actually are just having a like a conflict like uh you know healing process to what was truly like something passed between you and this other person and i think that's where you know I, at least what i've seen of people's resistance to the concept of like suggesting like you know questioning virology is like well then what you know what happened in the black plague or whatever and i think in that this for me is i think about okay what else could have caused people to like have symptoms of their body trying to heal something that wasn't solely from something that got passed to them. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing is there's unanswered questions. There's more research to be done, even in the realm of, you know, is it a toxin? Is it a conflict? You actually can tell as if, if it, we did brain scans on people and a person is expressing some type of symptom, we do a brain scan. If there is an impact in the, in the brain that controls whatever organ is expressing the symptom, we know it's a conflict. If the symptom is happening, but there's no impact in the brain, then we can say, okay, now this is the toxin that's causing the symptom. And so I think, you know, big studies, lots of research, there's so many possibilities to actually, to, to figure this out. It's figure outable right now. We're speculating because these studies haven't been done, but I do think, you know, when it comes to, is this a toxin? Is this a conflict? We can actually answer that question if we do the right stuff. Right. Wow. That is, this has clarified for me a lot of like, you know, places and points that I wasn't fully understanding, like the implications. And I'm, I know you have to jump, so I want to bring us to a close in a good way, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it sounds like, you know, what, you know, if the question is like, what do we do next? Like, how do we, you know, make this more available to people? How do we try to shift what, you know, the conventional system is doing? And I mean, it sounds like it's about a, like educating people on this being a possibility and trying to invite in more curiosity and, and research around it. But in our last minute, I just want to let you any closing points, if there's anything you want to tell people where they can connect with you, et cetera, I'll link stuff in the show notes, but do your, your little wrapping. What you said was perfect. It is. It's, it's all about understanding, like getting curious. Hmm, this, there might, there might, there could be something to this, you know, just like sniff it out, like come explore. I suggest people go to my YouTube channel. I'm going to be starting um, a live weekly class just to kind of go into the basics of, of Dr. Hammer's discovery, go through his thesis together so we can talk about it because, you know, I do think that's just exposure and then curiosity because all of this stuff, you see it on yourself. You see it happen in real time. And that's, it's, this isn't a, oh, I believe it because someone said it. No, you see it. And so I, I suggest that you dive further into it, get curious about it, start seeing some experiences. You can reach out to me if you have questions or if you're interested in, you know, having a, a discussion together about your symptoms, what you have going on. Um, but definitely uh, look at, look into it. Like don't sleep on German new medicine. It's For like, sure cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, this has been so amazing. I'm really, really grateful for your time. And I'm, I can't wait for people to listen to this because it's been so fascinating. So thank you again. This has been yeah. awesome. Thanks, Bella. It was awesome. Have a good for one. Sure. Bye. You too. Bye.